All right. Hello. So I'm I'm here with my friend Chris Kiefer. Is that how you pronounce your last name? Is that right? It is, yeah. Yeah. I've got Kiefer. a I've got a funny Facebook spelling to to stay a little bit anonymous uh, with my, uh, with my yeah. patients and things like that. But uh, yes, that is the correct spelling. So I, I invited Chris on because I've been learning a lot about climate change from reading Chris's Facebook posts. And <laughs> it seems like you've kind of, you're, or you're on your way to like turning yourself into some sort of an expert on this. Um, um, I don't know if, if you would agree with that statement or not, but it seems like you've done a lot of research in, in the past year or so. Is that true? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think expertise um, is a very kind of high level to, to achieve. And I, I wouldn't consider myself that at all, but I certainly, you know, as a, a lay person, um, yeah, I've read probably about 20, 25 books in the last year and, and poured through a lot of articles um, and, yeah, it's been really motivated, particularly since becoming a father, to think deeply about um, the environmental challenges that that are on his horizon, um, hmm. you know, on everybody's horizon, but they're going to dramatically affect uh, him over the course of his life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess we can just get right into it. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna assume that people listening to this know about the problem and that climate change is is a real thing and um it's caused by human activity um so i mean the i guess the solution that in my head i thought was the solution before reading some of your your thoughts was that we basically have the technology to to make things sustainable, i.e. solar panels and wind turbines. And um, all we need to do is, is implement them, which is a political problem. Um, one of the things that I found interesting about your, your stuff is that maybe that's actually not true. And can you speak a little bit about that? Like what, Wind and solar seem to be like the 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 gods of the 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 green movement right now. So, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I, and I think gods is not a uh, an accurate way to portray the the way that um, people, and particularly environmentalists and leftists, think about the technology. Um, they're sort of sacred cows. Um, whenever there's a news story about a renewable breakthrough or you know that a country was able to power itself for a few hours or even a day with its renewable energy infrastructure it's it's kind of heralded as a huge success story um but there's very infrequently a critical lens applied um such as okay but what happened the other 350 days of the year um or you know what is the country's overall um carbon intensity of their electricity and making comparisons you just you don't see that happening very often um and there's something called a, like the an appeal to nature fallacy or a naturalistic fallacy which is basically to say that you know things that are, are harmonious with nature or that are natural are better um and certainly when you think about sunshine and and the wind it's it's pretty great stuff like in terms of you know the ambient condition of it right but those qualities have been uh, branded really onto the collector technology um, namely as you were saying solar panels and windmills which in and of themselves are, are obviously made with lots and lots of raw materials so people don't think about the steel that's involved in in the frames to put up solar panels and you'd say really like you know that doesn't seem like it'd be a huge amount of, of steel or metal that's being used but when you realize um, how energy dilute a solar panel is how many solar panels are needed to uh, you know match the output of a fossil fuel plant or a nuclear plant or a hydroelectric dam the numbers are absolutely staggering and so there's a little bit of a like innumeracy where you know and i shared that as well it, it, i'm not natural with numbers it takes me a while to get around thinking about really big numbers and understanding large units of 
of uh, energy or other things. And, um, you know, but to summarize, it's, it's, you need, again, because wind and solar are so energy dilute, you need to build a lot of these things, you know, a a 2.5 megawatt wind turbine um, has 500 tons of steel in it and an enormous amount of concrete in the foundation. Um, And you need to build a lot of these things. Um, and there's, there's other problems I'll get into, but I mean, that's, that's just this idea again of this naturalistic fallacy and the, um, the beauty of the sunshine and the wind, um, being, I think falsely extended to the, the collectors themselves, which have quite a, quite a large environmental impact. Mm. So what um, I guess briefly explain like steel and concrete are, are very, energy intensive things to to make and to build with yeah and um, i mean it's, it's they're very useful i mean it's they've done incredible things in terms of building up human infrastructure um you know in terms of housing and uh, you know just bridges and and these sorts of things right which um which are important and which do lead to some sort of resiliency in the in the face of climate change right like if you look at the kind of death toll from um, major storms and hurricanes in the early 20th century compared to now, it's undoubtedly, um, you know, there's way lower casualties, even for storms and hurricanes of, of similar intensity because of the built human environment and the, you know, roads and hospitals and, and infrastructure we have to be more resilient. Um, and it's, you know, it's not that we can, um, use no natural resources and get our way out of our, our um, climate emergency. Like we do need to build an, an, an alternative energy system um, because even, even if you were to sort of take it to an extreme and say like, okay, we should just really, you know, humans have gotten out of balance with nature. We should, we should really just use natural things. You know, well, what is that? That's, that's burning wood. And with, you know, seven, 8 billion of us kind of returning and kind of going back to the land and, and, you know, cooking our food over a fire, heating our house, we'd run into the same problem that um, England ran into at the time of the Industrial Revolution, where they'd strip their forest bare and were well past peak wood. So, you know, it's not that steel and concrete are bad, but we should use as little of them as possible to create the same amount of energy. And so mm-hmm. when you actually look at what's called the material intensity or how much of these natural resources are, resources are needed to create the equivalent amount of power, um, what you'll see is comparing um, solar, for instance, to nuclear, you're going to be using 17 times more raw materials. So steel, concrete, glass, rare earth minerals, etc. And for wind, it's about 10 times more. And that, that's just an absolute huge number, like an order of magnitude is very significant, particularly when you're talking about um, you know, CO2 intense processes like, like making steel and cement and also just like mining, like mining mm-hmm. has a big environmental impact and, you know, environmentalists, I think should be driven by an ethos of let's have a light touch on the earth, um, and, and really minimize the impacts that we're having. And so, you know, I, I have come around to seeing nuclear energy as, um, a really vital uh, response to the climate crisis for a number of reasons, but one of them, just as an environmentalist who, you know, loves undisturbed nature and wilderness, is, you know, I would love to have one tenth of the the mining impact to to create the same amount of of low carbon energy. Mm. Yeah, that kind of thing is like when you put it in numbers like that, it's like, oh, dang, <laughs> like I, <laughs> yeah. I, because you know. I, I'm, I was, I'm one of those people too. It's like, I have this distaste for nuclear, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's like this, this big, ugly thing. It's, you know, it's the, the power plant that Homer Simpson worked at. Yeah. And, and it's like, it's, it, it's kind of, it's, you know, you're supposed to not like nuclear. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And it's kind of a tribal affiliation, right? And, you know, I grew up in a fairly left-wing family with environmental uh, politics, um, and you know, just like without ever thinking of it, I was anti-nuclear. Mm. Maybe it was partially The Simpsons, or you know, my my father is anti-nuclear. I think coming out of the experience of you know growing up under the real threat of nuclear Armageddon, right? Like doing the uh, hide under your your um, 
your desk drill at school during the Cuban Missile yeah. Crisis, right? And the fear that was extended from atmospheric weapons testing and nuclear weapons to nuclear energy is it's not hard to see why people would make that connection. And there's, you know, interesting arguments about, you know, the anti-war movement and the anti-nuclear weapons movement. I mean, basically, they were unable to to succeed with the abolition of nuclear weapons for, you know, a variety of like pretty strong geopolitical reasons. And so out of that sort of impotence of not being able to achieve that goal, they steered towards um, their efforts towards nuclear energy and really ascribed a lot of the um, dangers and bad things about nuclear weapons to nuclear energy. And then actually, you know, we're able to achieve some quote unquote success by um, creating hurdles and um, protesting and the preventing the building of, of nuclear uh, power plants, which maybe might sound like a good thing to some people. But the reality was that most of those planned nuclear power plants turned into coal plants. And when you look at the, um, you know, when a coal plant is running properly, it kills a lot of people, right? Through particulate air pollution, through heavy metal, through water contamination, you, you know, you're just burning hundreds of railway cars of coal every day and creating, you know, and not, not containing the waste whatsoever, whether, whether that's the CO2 waste that's being released or the particulate air pollution and heavy metals and smog that are created as a consequence, or even just the ashes that are left over, like tons, hundreds of tons of ashes, which are just often buried in wetlands, um, you know, and some, and quite often are leaking into water tables or, you know, dramatically bursting out of a sort of a containment pond and, and poisoning vast areas. And what's kind of ironic is the environmental movement was so active in opposing the construction of nuclear power plants, which created no air pollution, which had have a very light um, environmental touch in terms of the material intensity we were talking about before. Also a very small land footprint because it's just such an energy dense power source. You don't need to blanket the land and solar panels or windmills and that kind of stuff. So um, all that energy was expended on that. And then as soon as the coal plant started being built, where was the environmental movement away? They'd pack up their bags and head back to the next, the next struggle. Um, so that's, that's something that's been interesting for me in terms of doing doing some research in terms of the history of the anti-nuclear movement and the environmental movement. Um, you know, it certainly wasn't done out of spite, I don't think, or wasn't kind of on purpose or wasn't, I just think coal back in the 80s and 90s wasn't seen as, maybe it wasn't seen by environmentalists as such a dangerous or horrible thing mm -hmm. uh, because climate change and CO2, um, you know, in the carbon cycle imbalance wasn't wasn't perceived as a big deal back then, but just as a physician, you know, and, and having seen the impact of Ontario phasing out coal from its electricity generation mix, again, we, we burned 25% of our, our uh, electricity was from burning coal. Um, and it had massive impacts on things like air quality where, you know, we had over, I think it was 54 smog days in 2004. And when we finished phasing out coal 10 years later, we were at zero smog days and just, you know, the the medical associations really documented a dramatic decrease in people coming to hospital with asthma attacks and heart attacks and strokes and things like that. So just from a health perspective, that's that's another sort of human health and environmental health are things that steered me towards nuclear energy, because again, nuclear energy is what, what um, actually replaced coal in Ontario and allowed us to really get it all the way off the grid, which is super awesome. Hmm. So... I guess there's more, there's more to this because, so we, we looked at the, the sort of materials cost of, of wind and solar versus nuclear mm -hmm. and me, I mean, the, the people listening, maybe there's, there's an, more downsides to nuclear that will actually make up for that materials cost. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's, it's often said that the nuclear waste is is radioactive and harmful and lasts for like up to hundreds of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. So what what do you think about that? Or what have you found in your research? Yeah, so it is true that there are certain um, transuranic elements they're called which which do, you know, have long half-lives, right? And take a long time to decay. I think what a lot of people don't realize is that 
most of the stable elements that we have on the earth are the result of, of fission and of, of uh, you know, unstable elements becoming stable over large courses of time. Um, but in terms of, you know, the long, the long half-lives, um, you know, when you actually look at um, what, what can be done with the waste, um, there are a number of solutions. So one of it is actually, um, you know, using it as fuel in um, what's called fast reactors, which just um, don't slow down the, the neutrons as they split through your fissile material. I don't want to get too into the physics of it all, but basically um, waste, some people call it spent nuclear fuel or slightly used nuclear fuel, still retains about 90% of its potential energy. Just that the current reactors that we use um, economically, um, you know, only use about 4% of that and that it doesn't make sense to keep that in the reactor anymore. And so it's, it's stored on site. Um, so one thing that can be done, and there is actually a reactor in uh, Russia that, that does this, uh, it's called a fast reactor. You can turn that into fuel. Right now, there's not a huge driver for that because there's plentiful, you know, easily accessible uranium reserves in the world. And so there's not an economic driver to reuse fuel, although France actually recycles a lot of its fuel. Um, the other issue is that you really don't produce a lot of waste. People here, again, because of a kind of innumeracy and not understanding units of measure, right? You hear about, well, this many tons of, of nuclear waste are created per year at this nuclear plant. And it's really hard to have a sense of what that looks like, right? Because weight and volume are kind of interesting things. Uranium is even denser than lead, right? It's one of the heaviest, um, well, the heaviest naturally occurring element on the periodic table. So um when you think about what your lifetime uh amount of waste your waste footprint right if all of your energy needs as a you know middle class um canadian were supplied by nuclear including transportation heating electricity everything the waste that you would be individually responsible for would be about the same as a the same volume as a can of coke right um hmm. so you know that so but to answer your question about what to do with that so you can either reuse it or um, you can put it in what's called a deep geologic repository um, i think people when they think of nuclear waste they think of it as this kind of like green liquid that's vapor you know creates vapor and can sort of like a cartoon sort of travel through the air um, you know the mm -hmm. the spent fuel rods are you know they're vitrified so they're kind of like a ceramic uranium beads which are inside of a metal called a zirconium alloy um, and then those are enclosed in a concrete and steel canister which is then enclosed in copper which is then enclosed in multiple meters of something called bentonite clay which um, you know if radionuclides um, ever managed to work their way through all of those various barriers of defense you know and we're, this would not be like a liquid leaking but radionuclides that after thousands of years might uh, be absorbed into water they're then if they had to move through that clay what the clay does is it traps you know individual radionuclides um anyway so there's all of these barriers and then you're burying the waste itself you know around 500 meters or half a kilometer under the surface and you're putting it below a water table so it can't access the water table and then you're putting it in geology which has been stable for hundreds of millions of years like the proposed site um, in ontario um, near the bruce uh, generating uh, facility was in rock that was almost 400 million years old right and i think people just don't have an appreciation for uh, geology and the various sort of rock formations and and the limitations they put on you know how this waste could move around so a very small amount is generated um, really, we should be looking at, at it as a resource for the future in terms of, you know, there being a huge amount of energy that we could still pull out of that spent nuclear fuel. And lastly, if we do want to, if we do really want to just treat it as waste and get rid of it, um, it can be buried, um, I think, quite safely. And people talk about these timelines of, you know, we're going to need someone, you know, c c civilization sort of safeguarding it. And it's like, no, you have a tunnel access and you can close it over it's not that you need um to have a, a, a that's just not my main concern like when we're facing what's you know people refer to as a climate emergency which requires immediate action like it's always good to be thinking long term about things but like we're talking about the human race 
surviving and thriving, you know, for another thousand years. Like if we do things right, hopefully we can make that happen. And, you know, the, the anti-nuclear folks are perseverating on these risks, which are, I think, quite minuscule based upon what I've described to you in terms of that radioactivity actually leaking out and causing harm. And also, you know, well beyond the horizon of, you know, our survival, if we don't really do what's emergently needed, which is to um, cut down on our carbon emissions and actually get to um, negative carbon emissions. And again, I don't think mm. that's possible without nuclear energy. Right. So they're thinking about 10,000 years in the future when the radioactive material might cause harm, but we're talking about harm that's actually like a hundred years or even 50 well, and it's just like you know like nuclear nuclear power generation is the only um, form of generating power which completely contains its its waste stream right so again mm. i just i don't understand why there is this um, unique focus on nuclear when you know like is anyone out protesting the natural gas plants that have been built all over ontario you know it, natural gas burns cleaner than coal but it's still releasing a lot of um uh, a lot of pollutants like ozone and nitrous oxide and things like that, which which contribute to smog and and air pollution, right? Like if you had the same um, risk tolerance for um, just you know car exhaust as you did for nuclear, you would be walking around constantly in a respirator, right? Like you wouldn't sit around a campfire. Like if you actually think about you know the kind of incomplete combustion that comes from burning slightly wet wood in a campfire and you know occasionally the smoke blowing in your face and inhaling that it's orders of magnitude more dangerous than um than the low levels of radiation that you might get exposed to if you were like it's just hard to imagine how that that waste that i was describing in that deep geologic repository would be able to somehow leap to the surface and you know get to a concentrated area of, of humans and then the small amount of radioactivity that might be released you know the, the harms it would cause are just so minuscule i mean theoretically cause like a hundred thousand or not even a hundred thousand years maybe five thousand years from now uh you know they're just so tiny compared to um the risk that we face from just living in a city right like living air pollution mm -hmm. is is horrible like 7.7 million people die every year worldwide from uh from particulate air pollution and we should be freaking out about that right but but we sort of um i think we have a really kind of misplaced um uh sense of danger and we're you know human beings we know we're just not good at calculating risk and and ascertaining what our you know what our risks are and steering our behavior around sort of a rational appraisal of the numbers it's it's you know we act much more emotionally um and I think radiation being this kind of invisible thing and being associated with really horrible things like, you know, nuclear weapons, it's, it's natural for people to be freaked out. But if you do some research, um, I think it's, I think it's, um, I think most people will arrive at the conclusion that, okay, this, this is actually a very tiny risk compared to a lot of the other things that I live with on a daily basis. Hmm. So you said that nuclear is the only source that completely contain, contains its waste. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what what is the waste from wind and solar? Um, so, I mean, solar panels made up of some kind of more benign things like silicon, although silicon, if people watch the Michael Moore movie, Planet of the Humans, but it's, it's not just kind of sand, it's, you know, this high quality quartz that's uh, mixed with coal and then heated often with coal. But uh, the solar panels actually contain, um, and it depends on the kind of solar panel, but a lot and maybe even most solar panels contain um, heavy metals such as cadmium and lead um, and chromium uh, built into the panel. And panels degrade and, you know, the lifespan, we don't actually know the lifespan of the most recent panels. They're sort of guaranteed by the manufacturer for 20 or 30 years, but those lifespans have yet to play out. But in any case, these are these are temporary um, uh, units and they do wear out and then those heavy metals leach. Um, and there's actually a huge issue with um, solar panel waste. Um, there's some interesting articles coming out of Japan on that, but just the volume, right? Because you're having to change out enormous numbers of these solar panels. There's, um, <clears throat> there's a plan that's often cited as the rationale for you know, 100% renewables, 100% wind, water, and solar being 
um, an achievable um, goal. And again, what you were saying before, we just need the political will. And if we build enough solar panels and build enough wind pills, uh, wind turbines and dam enough rivers, um, we'll be able to do this. Um, one of the interesting things that I saw in terms of a critique of it is um, once you have finally built enough of these solar panels, it's going to take a number of years, right? Um, you will need to literally be replacing, um, you know, 20, 30 years from now, 2.6 million solar panels every single day forever <laughs> in order wow. to keep the system running, right? Um, and where do those solar panels go? Million? Hopefully there's some recycling, but, you know, we all know recycling is not benign either. There's big energy inputs into that. It's not a perfect process. And when things are, when corners are cut, and right now, you know, there's this thing called the electronic waste stream where old computers and electronics typically end up in Africa or, or Southeast Asia, and they get broken up by little kids in garbage dumps and heavy metals leach everywhere. So in terms of that waste stream being contained, that's, I wouldn't say that's, that's accurate. Similarly, you know, wind turbines, the, the blades, the fiberglass and balsam blades um, are not recyclable. And so they get buried in, in big landfills. Um, and there are heavy metals, uh, sorry, rare earth metal, metals that are used in the magnets of wind turbines um, as well, which hopefully can be recovered. But I wouldn't say it's a waste stream that's that's contained in the way that nuclear is. And, and it's just a testament to how dense uranium is as a, as a fuel source. Again, the equivalent amount of uh, volume of uranium to, say, coal, there's 3 million times more energy inside that uranium, which means you need very little of it and it creates very little waste. And that's why, like, because of political shenanigans, we haven't been able to um, actually build a, a deep geologic repository in Canada for our, our uh, spent nuclear fuel. Um, and but still, you know, all of the nuclear, the spent nuclear waste from these facilities is stored on site in these um, these steel and concrete canisters. And like, if you think about it, like 30, 40 years of, you know, enormous amount of power generation, the waste from that is all just stored on site. Like people find that like, uh Oh, but it's, it's also just a testament to how little there is of it. Yeah. And that, that you can't, yeah, that you can just store it on site and it's not, it's not 2.6 million solar panels every day. <laughs> is that what you said? Yeah. 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 Wow. That's, that's oh. sort of, uh, Mark Z. Jacobson's work, um, like an assessment of that work. Um, yeah. So that that means that if th let's say the solar panels last twenty five years, mm -hmm. and you need you need like a billion of them, and so per day, and you need to replace that many every twenty years. So that he just divided that out of. So what However, I mean, you're, you'd be building to get years? up to his targeted numbers. You'd be building, you know, X number of solar panels per year, and you know, this year, you know, twenty five years from twenty twenty one, when you start really upped your production, right? Those would those panels would start to, you know, um, at, you reach the end of their lifetime and need to be replaced. So it's not that we can build all the solar panels that his plan calls for immediately all at once, because that's just just not possible, yeah. right? Then we would have um, to replace them all all at once. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So it's just people are not like people don't think about the the numbers um, and the implications of how energy dilute these are and how many collectors are needed. Right. Like because because when we hear about renewables in the media, there's no critical lens or there's no these issues are not discussed. Right. So, I mean, just symbolically, when I think about it, just on a, you know, on a very superficial level, if you were like, you know, if I if I didn't know what I know if I hadn't done the research that I'd done I would think man if I could put a solar panel on my roof and it could you know deliver the promise of what I think it can do like power my whole house and maybe my car and um, you know provide this great energy and it's going to last forever and you know it'll be fully recycled if it ever does break down and you know it's energy dense and it's going to give me power all the time you know I, I, I'm not having to think about the fact that I'll be living with a blackout you know 80% of the time when the panel's not producing. Anyway, if, 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 if a solar panel lived up to this kind of fantasy that we have of them before we actually look at them with a bit of analysis, then hell yeah, I'd rather have that magical solar panel on my roof than live, you know, 70 kilometers from the Pickering nuclear power plant. Like I'm really not worried about li living that far from the nuclear power plant because um, I, I think it's a very well-run facility and, and I've done a lot of studying of nuclear accidents and 
the health implications. And I, I think they pale in comparison to just daily life in a, in a polluted city. Um, but yeah, I mean, if, if, if solar panels sort of did what I think we imagined them to do, yeah, I would love to have them on my house instead of a nuclear power plant. They're just simpler. They're more friendly, da, da, da. but the problem is that they just, they, they can't, um, they don't deliver on that promise. And mm. people don't know that because, you know, our media has really failed us in terms of, you know, they don't need to have an agenda um, on this or an ideology on this, but I think just talking and, and, and speaking to people as adults and giving them useful facts um, is, is important. Um, you know, mm -hmm. and, and it's funny, like people who, who, who raise concerns with uh, the limits of renewable technologies are sometimes labeled as renewable deniers and sort of thrown mm. in the, like, you know, thrown in that same camp as maybe a climate change denier. And it's just, you know, wow. it's, it's foolish. I think it's, I think it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's foolish yeah. to be making really informed decisions. Right. If we're talking about like, we, we're going to start a world war two level mobilization to completely, you know, change our, um, energy system to one that's carbon negative or sorry, carbon neutral or even carbon negative, like we better really do the research and really look through, Hey, what's the record of these various technologies? Like what have they achieved so far in the jurisdictions where they've been most invested in and built up? Like, are they being successful? Are they being as successful as other technologies? Like yeah, we, so before we I, invest trillions of dollars, hearing... we need to make sure that we're, we've picked the right plan. We've picked the right tools for the job. Yeah. I, I keep hearing that like, some country in Europe is running on like 80% renewables. So what, mm -hmm. like what's happening there? So there's like, a what, really, is that true? Or? So, so the, the, the best thing to look at, there's an app called electricity map. Okay. And what it does is it gives you moment to moment breakdowns of every, well, the countries that has access to their data. And that's most of Europe, North America, South America, Australia, et cetera. And it, what it gives you is the carbon intensity of their electricity that's being produced like moment to moment. Okay. So um, it's given in um, CO2 uh, equivalents, right? So it's looking at methane as well, but translating it all into CO2 equivalents. And so what you'll see is that there's a number of countries that um, reach a very low carbon intensity. And we'll say that's like less than 50 um, uh, CO2 equivalents. Okay. Per kilowatt hour. Sorry, I should say 50 grams of CO2 equivalent per kilowatt hour. It's a big unit, but you get the picture, right? Um, okay. And there are maybe around eight or 10 countries that consistently achieve that very low level of carbon emissions with their electricity. And those are countries like France, Sweden, Norway, um, and provinces and states like Ontario, um, and Costa Rica is on there, Iceland is on there. And what these countries all have in common is that they either have a ton of hydroelectricity um, or they have a ton of nuclear or they have a bit of both okay hmm. um, and then you see countries that are more in the you know we we're talking about the, the good ones being under 50 you see countries more in the 150 to 250 range and those ones you'll see germany is in that group um, the uk is sometimes in that group and then finally, you get into like the bad polluters like Poland and Australia, where they're mostly coal and they're at five or six hundred um, grams of CO2 equivalent per kilowatt hour. Right. So it gives you a bit of a sense of which countries are doing well and which countries are not doing that well. Germany, again, is often um, five times worse than its neighbor, France. And so France kind of accidentally decarbonized their electricity. Uh, they used to generate most electricity actually burning oil. Um, but with the um, OPEC crisis, where the, um, the countries of the Middle East um, uh, cut off the oil supply to the West as a protest against um, uh, and a war uh, in which Israel was involved and that the U.S. supported, um, this, you know, just dramatically spiked the price of oil and, you know, led to really big concerns about energy security around the world. Um, and France realized how vulnerable it was on the price of oil and the availability of oil to generate its electricity. So um, over about a 15 to 20 year period, they built something like 56 nuclear reactors and their electricity is now 75% delivered by nuclear, which doesn't release, once it's built, doesn't release any carbon and its whole life cycle produces 
um, the same amount of carbon as onshore wind and about one quarter the amount of carbon as uh, photovoltaic solar. Um, so they, they kind of accidentally decarbonize their grid. Um, Germany um, has actually um, had a fairly large fleet of nuclear reactors. Um, they um, took a different approach, particularly after Fukushima, under pressure from the Green Party, the government decided to phase out nuclear completely. I think the goal is by 2022. Um, and they have invested something around 500 billion euros in building out their renewable fleet. Hmm. Um, there's some really big challenges to this because um, they're what you'll hear is, okay, on this day, Germany met, you know, 80, 90% of its energy needs through renewables. And, and that's sold as a great big success story. But what you're not hearing is that that's, you know, under ideal weather conditions, this occurred. And it's, it's the exception to the rule. The vast majority mm. of the time they're needing to use that nuclear, which they're phasing out, use coal. And indeed, Germany's bringing a new coal plant online this year, um, which just goes against everything that we know is is what is needed for climate like they're closing down a you know zero carbon emission nuclear plant or they did that earlier this year and they're opening a coal plant um, which have a similar power output right um, hmm. because the other issue we haven't talked about with wind and solar is that they're intermittent power sources right they depend upon ideal atmospheric conditions um, and so you know at, at the latitude that germany sits at their solar produces electricity, their solar panels only produce electricity, you know, about 15% of the time, right? Um, mm -hmm. Their wind only produces electricity about 30% of the time. So when they're not producing, you need a whole backup electricity generating system to meet peak demand when the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing. Hmm. And so there's kind of this, there's this like wastefulness to it because, um, you're still needing this whole backup system, which may be coal or natural gas or biomass, which is a really, you know, um, greenwashed way of saying burning wood chips and, you know, waste and things like that, which produces a lot of air pollution, by the way. Um, but they have this whole backup cogeneration system, which is dirty and polluting and CO2 intensive. And that's why, even though they have a high um, installed capacity, they have a lot of solar panels and wind turbines built um, and they've, cut a lot of trees down and built a lot of roads because you need a road to go to every single wind turbine for servicing and things like that. Like they've really, I think, defiled mm. their nature and their landscapes by putting wind turbines everywhere, right? <laughs> they've industrialized mm. their landscape. Um, but anyway, yeah, they've not achieved, like it's just that the, the truth is in the numbers The and, and the numbers show that, you know, France is, is producing electricity with, you know, one fifth of the amount of carbon that's being released, despite Germany's like half a trillion euro investment in building up this renewable fleet. So there's some, it seems like wow. there's some impact. Their CO2 intensities come down 10, 20% um, in the last several decades with this build out of, of wind and solar, but you're never going to get to what's called deep decarbonization. And that's getting down to a very, very low level of, of CO2 production from your, um, from your electricity. And, you know, France, um, Ontario and Sweden uh, are three areas with a lot of nuclear that have accomplished that. And then you have places like Norway, which just has ridiculous um, ge geography and allows enormous amounts of hydroelectricity produced that, you know, have almost zero carbon electricity because it's all hydro. Um, but the problem mm -hmm. is that, you know, hydro, you, it's, most of the good rivers have been dammed. Damming rivers sucks, right? Like flooding massive yeah. valleys. Like it's not from a kind of, you know, nature conservation thing. I, you know, the, the, the St. James Hydro Project in Quebec flooded 10,500 square kilometers of, of Cree land, right? Like, wow. you know, and, and I think that's the key message is that every energy, there's no such thing as a, perfect energy source right it's all about looking at what's kind of the lesser of of the evils because you know energy is a good right like people take it for granted but having electricity is a really important thing and you talk to people that don't have it and you'll quickly realize just how important it is in terms of being able to you know read and and study when the sun goes down or you know have a hospital that runs or have water treatment mm. plants that run or you know all of the the things that we take for granted that, that electricity gives. There's a price to pay, but we need to pick the technologies that have the lowest impact. And 
um, both in terms of environmental and human health. And bizarrely, I've come to the conclusion that that's nuclear because that certainly wasn't my starting position. Wow. So I, I recently watched Planet of the Humans mm -hmm. and what I learned, I mean, I, I learned from that film that, that the, the mainstream story of wind and solar is not quite true. Mm -hmm. But um, at the end of the film, it seemed like the, the message was we have to use less energy and mm -hmm. that's the only solution. And so like, let's maybe that can be our, our final question. Like what, sure, yeah. what can, is using less energy possible or good or, or, or how much less energy can we use? And is it possible to get down to a point where we actually don't need these giant, um, infrastructure in energy generation projects because you know i i'm not very i haven't done very much re research but i sometimes think like why can't we just like i mean we're we're humans we're we're animals why can't we just like plant food in the ground and like eat it and that's how we survive like why has why does it have to be so much more complicated than that and so and yeah so why why do we need so much electricity that we need a nuclear power plant Alrighty, so that's a big question to unpack um i think going back where it's a little bit to think about environmentalism as a as an ideology is an interesting starting point because you know, environmentalism is a movement almost by definition of people whose material needs have been met, people who are generally middle class or upper middle class, who are kind of in the top one or two percent of wealth in not in the country, right? They're not one percenters per se, but in terms of the world population, people with, you know, who live in um, the West um, or industrialized countries, that's generally where um environmentalism as a movement uh was created and where it sustains itself so and it's easy to be very myopic living in in the developed world um about the condition of the rest of humanity and the conditions that they live in right and you mm -hmm. know i've got you know uh, a bunch of electronics on my desk right now um could I use some, some a bit less energy? I think that's that's quite possible. But you need to think about again that this this concept of numeracy, right? And what are the energy needs of people you know around the world, and how much energy do they use? So there's an interesting stat I heard recently that there are 3.3 billion people in the world that use less than a thousand kilowatt hours of energy per year, and that's about the equivalent of running a not very efficient refrigerator like the fridge that you had in the in the 80s or 90s when you were growing up um mm. so they would use that much energy in an entire year and what's taken for granted is that um you know if you don't have that electricity and you can't run that washing machine and you that means you don't have the infrastructure to pump water to your house um or to um, even just have an electric cooking range right what that means is that someone has to go out and collect the firewood. Someone has to go out and walk an hour to the stream or to the well and bring the water back. Someone has to spend hours cooking over a smoky fire and developing respiratory infections and lung disease, et cetera, right? And, you know, someone has to spend hours a day washing everybody's clothes, right? And so just by the nature of, of the way that humans work and looking back at our history, that someone typically ends up being poor people. And, and in terms of a gender perspective, it typically is women. Um, and so, you know, energy poverty um, leads to a lot of human exploitation. Like there's an argument to be made that the abolition of slavery wasn't driven by, you know, enlightened figures, right? Who, who fought for it, it was arguably driven by the creation of the steam engine and the substitution of mechanical power for human labor. Um, mm. And so, you know, in terms of women's liberation being a possibility, 
Um, that's because of a lot of labor saving devices that, that energy has allowed us to have, that electricity has allowed us to have. Like you can't get an education, go to university, et cetera. And that's, that's the story of a lot of people. When you talk to people in the majority world, um, you know, mothers who are raising their daughters and, and, you know, wanting a difference for them in the future. And whether that's an education or an ability to have reproductive autonomy, to decide how many kids they're going to have, to be empowered, you just can't do that if you're hauling water all day and cooking over a smoky fire all day and washing clothes all day. And, you know, the key message from um, that film, The Planet of the Humans, wasn't just like we need to use less energy. It was there needs to be less humans, you know, and they flirted around that idea. It's a really dark idea. Um, which is really drawn upon by eco-fascists, right? Like if you look at the the manifestos of the Christchurch and El Paso mass murderers uh, last year, it was full of um, environmental concerns and ideas around mm. pollution and needing to limit the number of people in the world. And generally that means poor and brown and black people. Um, but energy, having sufficient energy leads to women's empowerment leads to education leads to reproductive autonomy and leads usually to women choosing to have less children and so the population issue can take care of itself if there is enough energy um so i guess just you know my closing point is that energy poverty is something that is easy to fetishize when you don't live in it um mm. and uh there's a, an amazing quote i love by this indian economist uh Samir Saran, and he says, our poverty cannot be your climate change plan, right? Hmm. So there, you know, there's those billions of people around the world who not even can't own a washing machine, but don't have the resources or the access to energy to even be able to run a washing machine. Um, and you'd be damn right, those people are going to be fighting for it. And a politics and an ideology that tries to deny them that is just a, it's just not an effective one. It's not going to it's not going to win you over any friends or it's not going to build a political movement. Um, and B, if we don't choose the right technologies to create the energy that they are demanding, then they're going to use coal. They're going to use what's easy, natural gas. Like we have a responsibility as as the industrialized world who generally have mastered the fission of the atom and the ability to create enormous amounts of uh, carbon and air pollution free energy, we, we should be exporting and supervising that technology so that we can help countries like India and China and other majority world countries, um, you know, achieve a, a basic standard of living outside of poverty and energy poverty in a way that um, is not worsening the environmental crisis. Oh, I lost you there for a second. How much did you miss? Are you there? there? Yeah, I'm here. Yeah. You were talking about that we, we should be, the last word I heard was basic, achieve a basic, we need yeah. to be helping these countries. Um, so I mean, the yeah, energy I mean, that they need. Yeah. I mean, meeting people's basic material needs, I think is, is very important. And I think I was just talking about, you know, if you have a environmental ideology or political ideology that is um, built off of solving the climate crisis by keeping people in desperate poverty, A, that's just immoral. And B, you're not going to win over the majority of the world who are going to continue to demand development and, and access to energy. And if they, um, if we don't, you know, use our minds to choose what the, the least harmful technologies are to provide um, for, you know, provide that energy and, and help people escape from desperate poverty and, you know, high child mortality and all the other issues that come along with poverty and energy poverty. If we're not smart about planning our economy um, along the values of environmental and human health, um, then these folks are going to choose to burn coal because it's cheap and easy and, and gas and the environmental crisis and the climate crisis will only worsen. But we have the, we have the capacity and the know-how to do things differently. And, you know, we know that hydroelectricity and nuclear energy are the only two um, energy generation tools that have a demonstrated record of deep decarbonization. And we've seen mm -hmm. that wind and solar, unfortunately, um, are not achieving that and have not been able to achieve that despite massive investments in places like Germany and California, you know, where new 
in Germany where a new coal plant is being built, a huge natural gas pipeline is being built from uh, Russia to Germany and in California where enormous amounts of natural gas are being built to be that backup um, electricity generation system that's required because wind and solar produce so so infrequently and unpredictably. Well, it's it's certainly a lot to think about and a lot to digest. Um, and I, I just think it's cool. Oh. Like I, I've, I've <laughs> typically, man. Like you know, I read like a lot of articles and stuff, but I would only read like two or three books a year, like that I could really get into, and that would be just page turners, right? Um, yeah. And just like since I've started researching and thinking about these issues. Um, like I've just come across some really smart people, some really interesting thinkers, not people that I necessarily agree with on every single point, but people that are thinking about the world in such, such a creative way, because traditional environmentalism, I just find to be really quite boring. Like the narrative is like humans have sinned against nature. We must atone for our sins. We must sort of virtue signal by sorting our compost really carefully and maybe, you know, putting a solar panel on our roof and um you know and atone for our sins and it's just it's it's not a very like optimistic or interesting way of looking at the world and i've just you know through this this research i've been doing for the last year and a half i've just been like really fascinated i'm still you know i'm still not optimistic and i'm i'm really worried about the amount of human suffering that we're heading into in the in the 21st century but it is, it's just been really interesting. I've done a lot of learning and had a lot of, of preconceptions blown. And for me, that's something that's really enjoyable. Mm. I'm a nerd. What can I say? <laughs> well, I enjoy that as well. So thank you for, for speaking with me. I think, um, that's, that's enough for now. Do, do you have any, <laughs> any last words? I've spoken or... too much, my friend. It was, it was really good to connect with you and, uh, and yeah, it's good to get to chat about these ideas and I look forward to more of the same. Yeah. Because it's important, right? Like this is these are this is the vital question of our time. The vital question yeah. of our time is and, and before we jump into a Green New Deal and we um, steer our entire economies towards trying to get ourselves out of this, we need to really look at the facts and use the tools that we have to analyze those, namely science math, you know, these sorts of things to make our decisions, not sort of, um, feelings and emotions around like, Oh, I like the wind and the sun are, are nice. And, and so let's power ourselves with those things. Like it, it's true. They are nice. And that there's a temptation in that, but we need to make really rational decisions and evidence-based decisions because we can't afford to screw this up. We've screwed things up and up already. There's just, there's not time to, to, make a big mistake and do the wrong thing. Hmm. Well, there you have it. <laughs> so thanks. Thanks, Chris, for coming on. Um, I hope I can get lots of people to listen to this. We'll see. <laughs> All right, Paul. Bye. Great talking to you, man. All right. Thanks. Bye for now.